The blame game is one we often all play. We love assigning blame, especially to someone else, probably exclusively to someone else when things go wrong. I heard a story about a woman who one morning met her cup of coffee and dropped it, shattering it into a million pieces. Although she was alone in her house, her immediate reaction was to shout, damn you, Steve, Steve being her husband. Anyone watching and even she herself on reflection was surprised that her mind had so swiftly jumped to blaming Steve for the broken cup, the spilled coffee and her need to change her clothes. So she mentally traced back why in that instance, instant, she believed it was fair to blame the accident on Steve. You see, Steve goes out on Tuesday night, and this was Wednesday morning, to play a sport. He agreed to be back at 11 because she can't sleep when he isn't there. But he came in at 11.30, so she was extra tired and she got less sleep than usual. This meant that the next morning, in her state of extra tiredness, she picked up the cup, but she wasn't as clued in as she would have been had Steve come home at 11 the night before. And so her grip on the cup was slackened. Therefore, she dropped it. That's why she blamed Steve. In the moment of dropping the cup and shouting, damn you, Steve, this seemed like the only logical and just conclusion to come to. It had to have been Steve's fault, right? But as she reflected on it, she realized how flawed and silly this reasoning was. She learned something about blaming people and accepting responsibility for your own accidents and mistakes. As we read James today, I think God wants to teach us something about blame, about owning our own temptations and mistakes. But before we go into that, let's pray. God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it's the power unto salvation and it has been so for us. And Lord, I just pray that you would continue to teach us, continue to help us to mature in our faith in Christ with your word. I thank you that you are still speaking, you are still teaching, Lord, and that we come, come here as we listen to this to hear from you, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would not just be hearers, but we would be doers of your word as well. Amen. So we're in our third study of the book of James. In the first study we were talking about, and the second study as well, how James is about growing up in Christ. James is interested in seeing us become mature in Christ and mature in our faith. He isn't going to leave us in childish immaturity and ideas about what it means to be a Christian. He wants us to see our understanding grow, our relationship with Christ deepen, and the effects of grace in our lives more and more. James, we said, is the half-brother of Jesus. He was the son of Mary and Joseph, and he became a believer in Christ, as best we can tell, after Jesus was raised from the dead. Later, he became a leader in the church in Jerusalem, and so he becomes a prominent figure, especially in the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. We believe that this epistle, or this letter from James, to have been written before the Jerusalem Council. In the previous two sections, or two studies, we've been talking about the first half of the first section of the book. The first section is about what the mature Christian is like regarding trials and temptations. We have already spoken about trials. We have said that these are things that happen to us, things that are external to us, but are challenging to our faith and to us ourselves. They are things that are beyond our control. In the second James study, we were discussing the trial trail and how to overcome them, how to be mature, to be Christ-like in the face of trials and difficult external circumstances in our lives. 
we saw that there were four things God told us to do to be mature as we face trials. We're to count it all joy, to know that God tests our faith, to let God do his work, and to ask him for the wisdom to see what he is teaching us through our trial. We noted that in reality, these four imperatives are really not things we do, but are an attitude of trust we have in God and in his power to bring us through the trials as people who are better, more Christ-like, and not bitter. Today we're going to look at James chapter 1 verses 13 to 18, so you could turn there. In the previous 12 verses, we were talking and then we're introduced to James himself, and then we were talking about trials, things that are external to us as Christians, and how to align ourselves with the grace of God, which seeks to grow us in Christ-likeness through our trials. But not everything is external to us. We are not like the lady in the opening story, how she believed she was when she shouted out, damn you, Steve. We're not just victims of external circumstances and difficulties. There are also internal challenges at work. Not eternal, internal. There are things within us that can disrupt our relationship with God and other people. And that's what James will be addressing in this part of his lesson to us. So let's read James chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. I think that it's interesting that James links trials and temptations in this section of his epistle. We are breaking it up and we're looking at each one of them individually, mostly for the sake of time. But James has them together, and it's important to remember that. As I thought about this and the link between trials and tempta temptations, I was struck by how linked they are even in my own life. Even as we were talking about trials, we were talking about God's goal in allowing them. We said it was to make us better and not bitter. We were talking about our reactions to trials and how the Holy Spirit through James gave us some good ways to react. But we are often tempted not to react like that when trials come, aren't we? Temptation is to moan, to complain, to say, why me? Or in my family, we say there's never a dull moment. That's why I think James has these two things together, because often a trial leads to temptation. That's not the only time we feel tempted in our lives, but it's certainly true that there is a link between the two. And so the thought flows naturally for James. He was talking about trials, and in speaking about trials, the Holy Spirit brought to his mind the frequent result of trials, temptation. So the Holy Spirit has directed James in what to instruct the church regarding temptations. Warren Wearsby said, When our circumstances are difficult, we may find ourselves complaining against God, questioning his love and resisting his will. At this point, Satan provides us with an opportunity to escape the difficulty. This opportunity is a temptation. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about temptations. In verse 13, we're told 
that when we're tempted, we are not to blame God. Here's the link to our opening story. She blames Steve, but we're not to blame God. We like to blame others for our mistakes. And even when we're tempted, James sees the link here and he even uses the verb form of the word used for trial in the first 12 verses to talk about temptations. It's like he's saying when you are trialed, but the context tells us it's a different thing that he's talking about. It's not trials in the sense of our external circumstances, but the trials we put ourselves through. He knows that our sinful natures will decide that because he has told us that trials come because God allows them, that we'll then want to blame God for our temptations as well, for our own internal sinful natures and sinful desires which have been crucified with Christ which we allow to play too active a role in our lives by not reckoning our sinful nature to be dead and not walking in the grace of God, which is sufficient for our every daily need. So James tells us not to blame God, but he just doesn't give us an imperative and leave it at that. He also anticipates our next question, why? And he answers that as well. Just as a side note, one of the things I love about how the Holy Spirit has worked through the writers of the New Testament is this. He has allowed them to anticipate the questions the hearers and readers of the word will ask and answer them before they are even put into words. So James answers the why before we can even ask it. We're not allowed to blame God when we're tempted. And why is that? James tells us God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Now you might read that and think, wavy, wait, Jesus was tempted, but now you're saying that God cannot be tempted. So are you saying Jesus isn't God? Heaven forbid. We need to understand that Jesus was totally God, yes, but he was also totally man. This is what in theology is called the hypostatic union. Probably pronounced that wrong. And this means that in his humanity, well, hypostatic union means that Jesus was fully God and fully man. But what this results in is that Jesus in his humanity can be tempted. The human side of him, not the divine side of him, is what was tempted. As well as that, in James, we're talking about internal state of temptation, where the basis is in ourselves, our own sinful nature. Jesus did not have a sinful nature, so he was not tempted like we were. Are we are still tempted. There is no desire in him himself that would tempt him. He was tempted by the tempter, Satan. It's not completely similar to this, but it would be a little bit more similar the way Jesus was tempted to how Eve was tempted than it would be to how we are tempted. Because it's our, it's, with us, it's our sinful nature. Jesus didn't have that. So God cannot be tempted to evil and he does not tempt us to do evil. That would be totally contrary to his nature. God is immutable, which is another theology word that just means that he cannot change. He is what he is, and he always will be what he is. He doesn't ever act in a way that is contrary to his own nature. 2, Tim 2 Timothy 2.13 tells us that God cannot deny himself. So God cannot do evil, nor does the desire for any evil action exist within him. He is good and he desires our good. So he will never tempt us with evil either. The ESV Study Bible commenting on this verse says, God brings trials in order to strengthen the Christian's faith. He never tempts, however, because he never desires his people to sin.
Note that in verse 14, what James says there, he says, temptation is when we are enticed by our own desires. It comes from inside us, an internal process, not something from outside of us, but our own sinful desire rearing its ugly head. Satan can tempt us as well, but here, and probably most often in our lives, temptation comes from our own sinful desire. In the opening of this letter, James addressed to the dispersed, to those who were scattered. We are safe with God through Christ, but he does not seek to shelter us from everything. He seeks our maturity, and to mature, we need to face testings and overcome temptations in our lives. But we see that God doesn't just tell us not to blame him for temptation. He also gives us help to overcome temptation in our lives and to mature in our relationship with Christ. To overcome temptation, we need to keep three facts in mind, in mind, in our minds. The first is God's judgment, and we see that in verses 13 through 16. The second is God's goodness in verse 18, 17, sorry. And the third is God's divine nature within us in verse 18. So let's look at those three briefly. God's judgment first. Sin and evil are never God's desire for his people. This is how we know that God does not tempt us, because if he did, it would imply that he wanted us to sin, and he never wants that. Instead, God reminds us in this passage that the end result of sin is judgment. That's what James means when he says, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death, in verse 15. Of course, for the Christian, sin no longer means death. When we sin as Christians, we're not putting ourselves back under the condemnation of God, as if we had never been saved, or as if we need to be saved again. However, there's still a form of judgment for our actions. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it talks about the sort of judgment we will face as Christians. This judgment is a totally different one to the one that non-believers will face. That one is called the Great White Throne Judgment, and it's where sin is punished. For you and I, if you believe in Jesus Christ today, if he is your Lord and Saviour, sin has been punished in Jesus Christ. So we do not come to that judgment that is about our sin. Instead, we will sit before the Bema Seat. This judgment will be about reward. We will give an account of all our deeds to God, and he will reward us based on our motivations. So when a Christian ponders on the judgment of God, we are not thinking of death because of our sin, but the loss of reward and the good things that God has prepared for us. That's the judgment that awaits us. That should be a motivator when we're tempted, knowing that giving in to wrong, evil and sin would displease God, first of all, that's the most important, and then would cause the loss of our reward. It doesn't invalidate what James says about sin maturing into death. That's exactly the goal and the result of sin. For the non-believer, it results in God's judgment and their eternal death. Separation from God in what's called the lake of fire in the Bible. For us, the effects of sin still cause our physical death, but Jesus died the death we should have died to pay the price of sin. James in this section describes four stages in the process of sin. In verse 15, we see this process. The first stage is desire. If you do some soul searching and reflecting, even on your sinful desires, you will see they have a root in something good because the roots of our desires come from God. Temptation comes when we try and satisfy those desires by the wrong means or at the wrong time or with the wrong motives. 
For some people, the temptation can be to give up their desire, into their desires. And some people can be giving up their desires and repressing them. Both are wrong. Those roots of desire that God has placed in you, God has designed as part of your humanity and as part of the, your being made in his image. And so you become less human if you try and repress your desires fully and you become sinful if you give in to your desires wrongly. So desire, you could say, are at the emotional level in the process of sin. The second stage in the process of sin is deception. Temptation is when our own sinful nature lies to us and tells us that fulfilling, the fulfilling of some desire by some means or the repressing of a desire is really attractive and really good. The second stage is when desire moves from the emotional level to the intellectual level because we're attempting to convince ourselves that this reaction to our desires is the best reaction. This third, sorry, we're second stage. Second stage is the intellectual level. But then the third stage is disobedience. This could be classed as an action level. Sin has moved from emotions, which is desire, to intellect or deception, to disobedience or action. As we mature in Christ, we are less directed by our desires and our emotions and more by our will, our will that has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The final stage then, stage four, is death. Disobedience is like the birth and death is the result of that which was born when it is full grown. Remember what we've already said about what God's judgment looks like for Christians. It's a death to some of our rewards. It damages our relationship with Christ, but we're not going to be dead in our trespasses and sins. So, the first help God gives us here when temptation comes is to remember God is our judge. The second help is even greater. It's in verse 17. Let's read it. It says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We have already mentioned that our desires have roots in good things things that God has created the desire in us for. But temptation warps those desires. It is a trick of the enemy in those times of temptation. And the enemy here could be the world, Satan, or our own sinful nature. Usually, in this context that we're talking about, we're talking about sinful nature. And the trick here is that we're being told God is holding out on us. He is holding back the good things from us, the satisfaction of our desires. But that's not true. God is good and he desires good things for his children. He gives good gifts to his children. The goodness of God needs to be a foundational truth of our lives. This is so important because if we're not convinced of the goodness of God and that what he desires and what he orchestrates is only ever good for us, then our faith will fail and our hope will halt when we come across difficult circumstances. We'll be more likely to believe the lie that God is holding out on us and holding the good things from us. One pastor notes, the goodness of God is a great barrier against yielding to temptation. Since God is good, 
We do not need any other person, including Satan, to meet our needs. This is so important for our Christian life. How do you relate to God? Are you obedient to the word of God and the precepts of God because you fear God? You fear punishment? You fear what he might do to you or allow to happen to you? Were you to give in to temptation or sin? I imagine this is how many people relate to God, especially in Irish culture, which has been taught guilt and shame by the supposedly Christian institutions in this country. But that is not how God wishes for us to relate to him. He is good. He gives good gifts. He blesses us. He died for us. He saved us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We are heaven bound. Every good thing we have, we have because he has given it to us. That is the foundation God wants us to relate to him from. Not from fear of what he might do to us, but from love because of all he already has done for us. So what about when we need something? What about meeting those God-given desires in a healthy, wholesome and God-pleasing way? How does that happen? It's all by the grace of God. It's sometimes the hardest thing to do, but it's also the best thing to do. To wait on the Lord, to allow him to bless you with the good and perfect gift you need in your life when he decides you need them and when he decides you're ready for them. I heard of a pastor, and I think it was Pastor Chuck, who founded Calvary Chapel Movement of Churches, but I could be wrong, who prayed regarding finances that God would only ever give him as much money as he could handle and remain faithful to God with. He didn't want to have more money, only to find that money became his God. He wanted only what he could handle and be faithful and committed to God with it. That's a brave prayer, but a very admirable prayer. So I think a lot of us pray for more money. So we move to James' third help for us in times of temptation. The first was remembering the judgment of God, the loss of relational closeness with him and reward. The second was remembering that God is good and that what he gives us is better than anything Satan, the world or our sinful flesh could want, desire or offer. And the third is found in verse 18. The last verse we're going to look at today. Let's read it again together. It says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. When James says that God brought us forth by the word of truth, he is speaking of our spiritual salvation, not our natural birth. In this context, us means believers. Word of truth would be the gospel and brought forth, which was often used to mean coming from the womb, refers here to our spiritual birth as Christians. So we are the fruits of the new creation. I'm not sure if we're first fruits or the original hearers will be first fruits or perhaps all Christians throughout all of history are first fruits. I don't know if it matters. You can decide whichever one of those you want, I think. But we're definitely fruits of the new creation here today, if we're Christians. This new creation is new humanity, humanity indwelt by the Spirit of God himself. This is the third barrier, in a sense, for us when temptation comes. Jesus prayed that we may be one with God, as he is one, and that we may be united to him. We will never be gods, we will never be like God, but we as Christians have something of God, a union with him, a nature like his, the image of God being fully restored in us by his grace through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in and through us. 
so we are the highest of creation. Now don't get puffed up and big-headed because of that. Because we have nothing to do with us being the highest of creation ourselves. We can claim that because God made us that way. By design, he made us that way. And he makes us that way by salvation and sanctification. It's a work of grace, not something by our own hands. We're the highest of creation and one day we will judge the angels. That means that giving in to temptation is below us. It's beneath our dignity to accept Satan's bait or to desire sinful things, one person said. So those three helps are given by God to resist temptation and to not give into it and to stand firm in our faith when temptation comes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, Paul reminds us, no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We have seen three ways out tonight, three ways of escape. Remembering the judgment of God, remembering the goodness of God, and remembering that God is within us. Three ways out, but there are many more. And when temptation comes, we can be sure that our good and loving Father has provided a way for us to escape from giving in. We just need to refocus on him and he will show us the way. But there's even greater benefits to resisting temptation than just not sinning. We've already been talking about our growth as a Christian. Resisting temptation is a way that God uses to bring spiritual growth in our lives. Each time we say no to the world, no to the devil, or no to our own sinful natures, and each time we say yes to him, we are more likely to say yes to him the next time, and the next time, and the next time. The person who learns to say yes to God That is the person that can be empowered by God and used by God to do God's will. Finally, a third benefit of overcoming temptation is seen if we go back again one verse to James 1.12 from our passage today. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There's a crown waiting for the one who stands firm in trials and temptations. This is the reward. Note that again, just like when we're talking about trials, what God is calling us to is not a tedious task. It's not a long list of do's and don'ts that we're given by God here. Instead, we're told to remember three things to overcome temptation. Remember that God is just, remember that God is good, and remember that God is in us. And by recalling these three things, that that's the best way to overcome temptation in our lives. The burden of Jesus is light. His yoke is easy. And we see again that it's all by grace. The grace of God that was achieved and made accessible to us in the life, death, and the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ is once again central here. That's why in Calvary Limerick, one of our cores is having the person of Christ central to all we do and another is that we want to be a grace community. Let's just pray. God, we thank you so much that you do not tempt us. We thank you that our sinful desires were crucified on that cross with Christ. Lord, I pray that as we get to know you more, that as we walk with you each day, that as we access your grace that is sufficient for us,
that we would reckon that sinful nature to be crucified. We would not treat it as if it's alive and well. We would not give in to temptation. But Lord, that we would remember these three things. That we would remember that there is a reward for us when we follow you and that you are the judge and you are the judge who will decide on that reward. I pray that we would remember that you are good and that every good thing comes from you and that nothing the world or Satan or our sinful flesh could offer could be better than what you have offered us and what you will offer us and what you will do for us. And I pray that we remember that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, his dwelling place, your dwelling place, Lord, is in us. And that when temptation comes, when these good desires become warped in our minds, that we would remember these things, that we would hold on to you, that we would find the way of escape that you have promised to give, Lord. And Lord, that we would say yes to you and no to sin. And that as we say yes to you, Lord, that you would cause us to say yes and yes and yes to you and use us, Lord, to bring something of your kingdom, of your light, of your love to people around us. Lord, we thank you for, for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. And we thank you for what it means for us today and what we have seen from James. And again, Lord, as I prayed before, I pray we would not just be hearers of this word, but that we would also be doers of the word. In your name I pray. Amen. So if you enjoyed that or if you have any questions or you would like to discuss more about James's view on temptation or the Christian view on temptation or how God can help us in our temptation and to overcome our temptations or anything else you hear on the Calvary Limerick podcast or anything about Christianity in general, I would love to hear from you. My name is Wavy and I'm planting Calvary Limerick. At the minute we meet once a month for summer 2018 on the third Sunday of each month in the Castle Troy Park Hotel at 11.30 a.m. But outside of that, I would love to just have conversations with anybody who's interested in a way that it's not me standing at the front talking about what the Bible says, like you've just heard, but in a conversational setting. So in that vein, as of the second Sunday um, of July, so I think that's the 8th, could be the 9th, I think it's the 8th of July, um, I will be in Hook and Ladder from 2 to 3 each Sunday for anybody who would like to come along and just have a conversation about Christianity, about what it is, about what it means for us today, or about what Calvary Limerick um, hopes to do or hopes to be in the future and what it's doing now to be that and any kind of, kind, of, kind of conversation you would like to have regarding James or Matthew or anything you hear on the podcast or anything about Christianity in general to come along, have a cup of coffee and have a conversation.